uh, certainly if you've got young children, uh, you are constantly offering advice. Do not run with that sharp, pointy stick towards your sister. Do not hit your brother with the lightsaber. Don't stand on her head. Don't just run across the road. Look left and look right. Now, this is all helpful stuff for keeping your children safe, isn't it? And there are many people out there who are keen to keep us adults safe as well. I I, I was uh, amused when I bought a toaster recently from Tesco's to get the leaflet of instruction. Here are some top tips. Dry, thin slices toast quicker than moist, thick slices. Oh, good. If toast starts to smoke, press cancel button immediately. Good. Never put wrapped, I was tickled by that, never put wrapped, buttered, or items with sugar icing into the toaster. Never do that. Now, if you're like me, I'm thinking, I wonder what happens. (laughs) Don't do it. Don't do it. You've been warned. Don't do it. Do not touch the body of the toaster when it is hot. Do not immerse the appliance in water or liquid. These are wonderful instructions. Very helpful for all toast lovers to keep us safe. But here's my question this evening. Uh, This evening. Gosh, it's been a long day. (laughs) This morning. How do you keep a Christian congregation safe? How does a church committed to gospel partnership stay on track? How will we as a church be kept from spiritual harm? I want you to open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 3, page 1180, if you have a church Bible here. Philippians chapter 3, page 1180. It's going to take the time to read the first 11 verses of chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God 
and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Now the church that Paul had planted in Philippi, it was facing hostility from groups outside the church. It was facing potential disunity from within the church. And so Paul wants to give them safety advice. He's given them this advice in the past. And it's advice that all gospel churches needed to be reminded of over and over again. It's no problem to be reminded of this. It's very important that we should be reminded of this. And the key to health and safety in a congregation is there in the very first verse of chapter 3. Look at it again. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, when you first read this, you might be tempted to think, well, that's, that's a minor point. We're getting on to the other stuff. But actually, this is the major point. Rejoice in the Lord. The key to keeping going in all sorts of relationships is to find joy in them, isn't it? Just think about a marriage. What keeps a marriage safe? Why does a marriage relationship continue in a healthy way? It will do so when the man and the woman in that marriage continue to cultivate and experience joy in their relationship. When there's joy in a marriage, it's the safest way to protect it. They will not be looking anywhere else for such joy when they have it in each other. What keeps a business partnership going? Well, when business partners continue to find benefit and joy in their working relationship. It's when relationships break down, when things get tough, when uh, the business partners look at each other and think, well, it's more hassle than it's worth. That's when businesses split, when partners head off in different directions how does a congregation keep working together in gospel partnership when the world around them is hostile when there's when there's potential of growing rivalry and disunity in the church how do you keep on track well it is this you need to find your joy in god you need to cultivate joy in the Lord Jesus Christ and the glorious good news of the gospel. We need to rejoice in the Lord. That's the command that we need to heed in that sort of context. That is what will keep us safe. That's what's going to keep us on track as God's people. And Paul had a very specific threat in mind that he wanted to warn them about, and it's there in verse 2. And in the original language, it, it, it repeats this initial phrase. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those men who do evil. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. Now, they sound a scary sounding bunch, don't they? I, I, I don't know if I tell you what this morning, people are going to run to this building. They're dogs. They're men who do evil. They're mutilators of the flesh. You know, what, what are we expecting? to come crashing through the doors. They sound very scary. What's going on here? Well, Paul, of course, at great personal cost, had pioneered the spread of the gospel into the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world, of which most of us are made up here, I guess. He proclaimed the gospel of a, of a crucified and resurrected Jewish Messiah. And his message was this, that Jesus 
is the Christ, the rightful Lord and Savior, not only of the Jewish people, but of the whole world. He is Lord of all. Every knee will bow before him. And he was calling on people to uh, repent of their self-absorption and self-worship and foolish idolatry and acknowledge that Jesus alone is worthy of that worship and praise, that Jesus alone should be Lord of their lives. That is what he preached. All needed to receive forgiveness and pardon for living sinful lives of rebellion against God. And Jesus had made that perfectly available in his death upon the cross. Amnesty was available for rebels. That's what he proclaimed. And as you read through the letters of Paul, you see that um, as Paul pushed out into new territories, he was dogged by another group of missionaries that tended to follow behind him after he had gone. They were impressive-looking people. They were moral and upright. They spoke using similar words to the Apostle Paul, but they had a message that was quite different. The commentaries termed them as Judaizers, and their message went something like this. Well, it's, it's, it's great that uh, you've been listening to uh, our brother, the Apostle Paul, who's been telling you about our Jewish Messiah. Marvelous, but... Um, you know, if you really want to be accepted by God, if you really want to be part of the people of God, uh, you know, us, the ancient people of God, then you really need to become a Jew. You need to follow the, the Jewish food laws. You need to be kosher. You need to start obeying the good works that we find in our Jewish customs. And uh, <clears throat> you men, I'm afraid, uh, really, if you really want to be serious, then you must be initiated by the right of circumcision if you really want to be part of the people of God. Only as circumcised and obedient uh, Jews will you be able to be part of God's covenant people. Only then will you be right before God. That was their message, that they came behind, following behind Paul, following behind in these churches. And this is what Paul is warning about them in the strongest terms. Did you pick out how strong it was? Verse 2, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those men who do evil. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. This teaching is wrong. It is dangerous. Everything that these Judaizers boasted in, he turns into sort of an ironic jibe. Look out for those dogs. Now, the Jews in the first century used to call Gentiles like me dogs. And for dog lovers, you might think, well, that doesn't sound too bad. But remember, dogs drink out of your toilet. And they will eat anything you put in front of them. They'll eat rubbish. And that's what the Jews were getting at in their jibe. Uh, Gentiles will eat anything. Not like us Jews with our strict Jewish kosher laws. And Paul says to them, you know, Christians in Philippi, you're not the dogs. They are. They're the dogs. Watch out for those Judaizers who keep talking about their good works when they say that you need to add them on top of Jesus. Do you know what? They're really just evil works if they say that. If they say that you have to add to the work of Jesus, what they're telling you is evil works. And those people who keep going on about circumcision as the real way to become part of the people of God, they just want to mutilate your private parts. Well, that's an impassioned warning, isn't it? Why is Paul getting so excited and troubled by these people? 
Well, you see, now that the Jewish Messiah had come, now that he had died upon the cross and been raised and fulfilling all the ancient laws of God's people, then the identification of who are the people of God had radically changed. It is no longer about being Jewish. Look at verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision. The true people of God now are Christians, the Christian church, made up of both Jew and Gentile. That is who the true people of God are now. It is those who trust the Jewish Messiah. It is not a surgical, physical mark in the flesh that has any significance. The real mark of the people of God are the things listed in the, in the verse that follows there. It is we who worship by the Spirit of God. The mark of God's people now is that God's Spirit is within them. They are people who worship God because of His indwelling Spirit. And how can we know that God's Spirit is at work in people's lives? How can we know that God's Spirit is at work in our worship? Well, the next phrase tells us how we know. Who glory in Christ Jesus. See, when you meet people who glory in Christ Jesus, the one revealed in the Bible, then that is primary evidence of the Spirit of God. That's how you know that the Spirit of God is present. People who glory in the Lord Jesus. And that, and that word glory could be translated also boast. People boast about all sorts of things, don't they? Chelsea was boasting about its incredible record of never having a goal scored against them, and then Man City came along. Um, I see some P's and G's were thrashed by Charlotte Chapel Football Club, 2-0 in the, in the bulletin. Uh, we can boast about these things. People boast about all sorts of things. People boast about being Scottish, and rightly so. Marvelous it is. Or even better, being Welsh. I mean, we boast about many things. What marks the people of God is this, that their boast is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. They boast about who he is. They boast about what he has done. And the thing about the people of God is that they, as they are boasting about the Lord Jesus, they will not be boasting about any of their own achievements. Look at verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. God's people do not put any confidence in their personal achievements. Evangelism Explosion is a, is a great course, and they ask this question. It's a great diagnostic question. If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or not? How would you answer that, I wonder? If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or not? Secondly, if God was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would your response be? If God said, well, why should I let you in? What would your answer be? I wonder what you would say to those two questions. There may be a variety of responses to those questions this morning in a room this big, but really they could be boiled down to two responses. Your answer will either be about boasting about yourself, or you will be boasting about Jesus Christ. And I wonder what does your response look like? To use Paul's terms more closely, is your confidence before God either in the flesh or is it in Christ? Now, Paul knows that this is what's on 
uh, on offer the choices because he's of his own experience and as you read this you'll have noticed that Paul stops using the, the words you and we in verses 1 to 3 and he moves to the personal language of I in verses 4 to 11 Paul Paul shares something of his experience his life story illustrates the radical difference between putting confidence in the flesh over having your confidence solely in Christ see there was a time in Paul's life where you've asked him well why why should God let you into heaven he would have answered all these things about confidence in the flesh he had great confidence in his religious pedigree and in his religious performance he had a CV that would have impressed any Judaizer look at verse 4 if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh I have more it had been done on the eighth day he had the best family connections of the people of Israel of the significant tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrews he had confidence in his theology he had followed the most scrupulous group of Jewish law keepers going at the time a Pharisee they knew their scriptures inside out and they were passionate to obey all its rules in fact the only thing that saddened the Pharisees is that, is that there weren't enough rules for every occasion and so they made up a whole bunch of extra rules and they obeyed those as well scrupulously he'd kept the lot his confidence was also in his zealous works he was so passionate about obeying God's law that he was a zealot wanting to enforce that other people should be obedient too. He became the most significant persecutor of this upstart cult called Christians who believed that the Messiah had come. What nonsense. They had to be put down. They had to be persecuted. And he'd led the charge. He had confidence in his own morality. As to righteousness, it says, under the law, blameless, faultless, now Paul's not saying he was perfect the Old Testament laws taught how sinful people could come to the temple and and receive forgiveness through the animal sacrificial system and Paul had followed through the system faultlessly here was a deeply impressive religious person someone with a track record who could have outstripped any of these Judaizing teachers who were traveling around trying to influence these young Christian churches and there was a time when Paul's confidence would have been in all these achievements of position and status. They were all credit for him, the basis of his good standing before God. And I wonder, is that what you think about yourself today? Well, maybe you're not Jewish here today. You probably wouldn't come up with that list. But maybe when it comes to it, if I was to ask you on what basis should God allow you into heaven, you'd have your own list of things that you've done. Maybe you would say, well, I was baptized as a, as a baby into the Catholic Church, or I was baptized into the... Uh, Presbyterian Church or the Episcopal Church or maybe in Charlotte Chapel you would say well my grandparents and parents were members of the chapel you know I was baptized by Sidlow Baxter I've been a Baptist all my life I go on short-term mission trips Do you know I say my prayers every night I give to charitable causes you know actually I donate a lot of my time to charity don't like to talk about it but I do you know, I've served as a public servant. I've served as a city councillor. Do you know what? If you ask my neighbours, they would say, I'm an honest man. I pay my taxes. I give blood. And what I want to say to you 
is that if you are relying on a list like that, about getting right with God, then you are basically boasting about yourself. Your confidence is in the flesh. Now, many of those things are good, but they're not good things if they are the reason you have confidence in God. If your answer boils down to your achievement, you are not right with God. You're not ready to meet with God. You'll face God as your judge. You have no hope if your confidence is in that list of achievements. To get right with God, you see, we need to totally reorientate our value system. That's what happened to Paul in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now these are great verses for accountants and business owners here today. This, this, this is language you understand. Profit and loss. And there was a time when Paul would have stacked all those things on the profit side. Yes, things are looking good between me and God. Plus, 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 plus. Positive, positive, positive. And what Paul is saying is that when Christ met him on the Damascus road, he suddenly saw that all that list of achievements, all that he thought was profit, was a total loss. It was empty. What use was all that Judaism if he ended up crucifying the Messiah? What use was all that moral religious achievement if in the end he was opposing what God was doing in the world as there he saw the glorious resurrected Jesus at God's right hand and he realized at that very moment, what have I done? It's all wrong. The only ground of confidence that could give any hope was to trust in this Lord Jesus Christ alone. So you see what Paul is doing here to these Christians in Philippi. We don't know whether these uh, Judaizers had turned up yet. Paul knew from track record that it wouldn't be long before they did. And he's saying they're going to turn up with this very impressive message. Let me tell you, I had all of that and it's nothing. Don't follow them. Watch out. Watch out for the dogs. Now, have you realized that? Have you realized this? That, do you know, if our hands are full holding on to our own grubby little achievement list, that we will never be able to take hold of Jesus Christ and his glorious achievement for us. Any religious or spiritual activity that we believe earns us brownie points, we need to count it all as a total loss so that we can fully embrace the one who's done it all for us. For Paul, it was not just his religious achievements that he now considered a loss. Look at verse 8. What is more, I consider everything, everything, a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I've lost all things Paul's testimony of the past was not just a, a rush of adrenaline that he now regrets as he writes so many years on he still counts everything a loss do you know in following Jesus he'd lost much he had lost the kudos and respect and admiration of his Jewish peers. 
Paul was a rising star in Judaism, and there is no doubt that there was a great career ahead of him. He had lost many things that people value today. He'd lost position. He'd lost prestige. He had lost power. And he counts all of that as excrement, as dung. He's using a word in the original that we don't say politely in church. But it's all of that. It's rubbish. Now, why would the Judaizers' message be seen as positive? This is the thing to think about. What was it about the Judaizers' message that would have remotely seemed attractive? Now, if you were a bloke, that's a tough message to take. Why on earth did it, would it have received any acceptance in the church? And I think it's this, because it offered a way out of suffering. You see, Paul says, you are now suffering um, the way that you saw I suffered. Now, you read to the Acts of the Apostles, where did Paul get suffering from? He would go to the synagogues. He would preach that Jesus is Christ. He would end up normally being kicked out of the synagogue. He'd go down the street. He'd start preaching somewhere else. And some of his fiercest opponents would be um, Jewish synagogue leaders and rulers, people who were uh, jealous of the way that this gospel was actually drawing these God-fearing Gentiles who used to come to the synagogue, was now being drawn to them. This was some of the source of their opposition, of their pain and their conflicts. And you see, if the uh, Philippian church actually accept what the Judaizers are saying, well, do you see, it is actually going to keep them back from suffering a bit. They're going to be identified more with the synagogue. This was a recognized religion within the, uh, the Roman Empire. Jewish synagogues uh, had there was no persecution for them. There was an old religion. It was accepted by the Roman Empire, not, not the Christians. The Christians were persecuted. And here was a message that identified them a little bit more with the safe synagogue. You see, what was tempting and attractive was here is a way out of suffering. Here's a way back into acceptance. And that's a bit closer to home for us, I think. What is it that we value? I don't know about you, but I value comfort. I really do. I never go out my way to try and make myself uncomfortable. Do you? You know, I've got that stage of life. I'm quite happy wearing slippers. I, I, I don't care about being cool anymore. I just want comfortable, warm feet. We embrace comfort. We embrace ease. We embrace freedom from anxiety freedom from suffering we want to be accepted in our society we want to be respected by our peers here in Edinburgh and Paul says all of those things compared to Jesus they're dung they're excrement and the key to safety is to rejoice in the Lord. Remember what we have in Jesus. Remember all that he's done for us. Oh yes, we're tempted to go back to a more comfortable place. Who wants to, in this culture, stand up for biblical values on sexuality? Who wants to say the truth in the public marketplace? Who wants to stand up and say the truth about various things out there? 
Well, you're going to get it in the neck, aren't you? Let's adopt a safer Christianity, a quieter Christianity. When will we just do lots of good deeds and they'll respect us? Let's not talk so much about a crucified Jesus, about the only Lord and Savior of mankind. Let's, let's back away from those things and then we'll fit in. And what we need to keep us safe from that seductive message is this. We need to rejoice in the Lord. Remember what we have in him. Uh, William Taylor, in his little book on, on Philippians, he points out these three words. I hadn't seen it till I read it, so I want to acknowledge William Taylor for this. Three words that help us understand what we have in Jesus. These words are relationship, righteousness, and resurrection. Think about what we have in Christ. Relationship. Look back at this passage. Look at what Paul says um, in verse 7. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Uh, we, I was chatting with someone this past week and um, he was dropping lots of names, people he knew. I know, and I played the game too. I was dropping names of people I knew. Uh, you know him? I know him. You ever play that game? Uh, the winner is, who knows the coolest person? Who knows the biggest person? Who's the biggest dog? Who knows? And it's a stupid game. It's utter foolishness. Uh, we got up to the Australian Prime Minister. That was pretty good. Oh, yeah, well, actually, I met the Australian Prime Minister. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Now, of course, that's all nonsense, isn't it? Let me tell you about a name to drop. Do you know Jesus Christ? Consider him, the perfect man. The one who came and never said the wrong thing. The one who saw the crowds, had compassion on them, taught them, fed them, loved, healed the brokenhearted. The perfect man. I mean, we, we, we talk about, well, I know this person. I met this film star. I know this person. Well, how do they compare to Jesus? Oh, they're well short, are they not? Who's the finest person you've met? They are well short compared to Jesus. To say we know Jesus, the perfect man. To say we know Jesus, who is fully God. I actually know the God of the universe. I know the person who made you, actually. I know the person who grants your next breath. I, I know him. I know Jesus Christ. There's a name to drop. Christianity is not a religion of our personal works. It is a living relationship with a person, Jesus Christ. And Paul says that he's on a hot pursuit to know this person above all every other person. He wants to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to gain Christ. He wants to be found in Him. Here is the person that He most wants to declare and know and boast in. And look at what it is to, ha to know Christ. It guarantees righteousness from God. That's what Paul goes on to remind them. Do you know you can never get right with God by your own human effort? 
our best attempts of doing right and good things, the Bible says that righteousness is just like filthy rags to him. Our only hope is to put our faith and trust in the finished cross work of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can become right with God is by faith in his finished work. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is being right with God by my rule keeping, but that which comes through faith in Christ, trust in Christ, reliance on Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There is a very important biblical word, and it's called being justified. It's linked here with this word righteousness. It's a legal term. It is a term of uh, being declared not guilty, free to walk away from the courtroom, not guilty, no, no charges against you. That is the word justified. It is looking forward to the final day of standing before God as the judge of the living and the dead. And we will all stand on that day. We will all have to give an account on that day. Now, I don't know whether you've ever been involved in a legal case, whether you've somehow been caught up, maybe incorrectly, and uh, sued or something, and it's all gone to a, a trial. And maybe that trial is months and months off. What is it like to have the anxiety of a trial? It's terrible, isn't it? You're consumed by what's going to happen. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen? What's, what's going to happen on that final day when the judge pronounces and says to the jury, what say you, jury? Or when the judge passes sentence, what's going to happen? Every day is consumed by that. Now let's imagine you had a TARDIS, a Doctor Who thing. Don't worry if you've not seen it, but there's a special Christmas one coming up. Let's say you, you have a TARDIS, you're a time machine, and you could get into that TARDIS, and uh, the doctor, very kindly, could take you to that uh, day where, the, where, the, where the, the sentence would be pronounced. And you get out of the TARDIS, and you listen in, and the judge says, what say you, jury? And they say, not guilty. And the judge dismisses the charges, and you are free to walk away and then you get back into that TARDIS and you come back to the first day of the trial now how are you feeling during that whole trial process well terrific aren't you you're walking in you're smiling you're waving at people you, you see someone that needs some help you go oh how can I help you because you know everything's going to be okay well here is the glorious truth on the cross Jesus took the punishment of judgment day for those who put their trust in him and when you put your trust in Jesus we receive today as it were the message from the TARDIS justified not guilty nothing to account for and then to live each day with the sure confidence that my right standing before God is not down to my track record it is because I'm trusting in Jesus sometimes as Christians we get into terrible uh, anxieties and worries and we think oh I haven't repented enough 
Maybe there are some sins I have not repented of and I haven't said them before God. Maybe I haven't trusted enough. Now, do you see where the stress is at that point? Oh, whoops, we're back to you. It's about your repentance, your faith. Uh Uh-uh, that's human achievement. That's all the stuff that's a loss. It's about Christ. Are you trusting Christ? If you turn from your sins, then you are justified. You have righteousness that comes and depends on faith in Christ, my friend. Now, when we understand that through relationship with this glorious person, the Lord Jesus, we gain a righteousness from God that is ours now and we are right and free before God, is that not the place of joy? Is that not the place of freedom to live out the Christian life? Is that not just a totally wonderful thing? And my friends, it is terrible. Never listen to any group that says, oh yes, you've come to Jesus, but you need to do some other things as well. You need to add to it. Islam is a false religion. It proclaims a form of salvation through obedience to the five pillars of Islam. And even if you've done that, you're not sure if you're going to make it at the end. It is a false religion. It is a terrible delusion. The cults like the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons are wrong because they proclaim that the, there's, yes, there's truth about Jesus. Yes, we accept the Bible. But we also need our books. We need to obey our rules to be right with God. My friends, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is wrong. Uh, about this doctrine of justification by faith alone, the Council of Trent anathematized that and said anyone who believes that is a heretic. It's wrong. Now, my friends, you can be Catholic and trust Jesus, but if you are if you're believing what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, they're teaching Jesus plus. And my friends, if it's Jesus plus, there is no joy. There is only anxiety. Because how can you know if you've done enough? Oh, it's empty. My friends, Jesus has done it all. Do you know him? Are you trusting him? Because those who know him and are trusting him, they enter into the certainty of resurrection. To have a relationship with Jesus is what guarantees a righteousness from God and the certain hope of the resurrection from the dead. Look there again at verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 11 is not expressing any uncertainty about the resurrection of the dead. He's uncertain about how he's going to die. Is he going to die in prison there? Is he going to be executed? Is he going to get out of prison, die some other way? He doesn't know, but what is certain is the outcome of the resurrection from the dead. What he's looking forward to is the certainty of entering fully into God's kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, with a glorious resurrection body like the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is, is his because he knows Christ and is trusting Christ and is relying on Christ for his righteousness and has the certainty of the resurrection. Now verse 10 is kind of surprising when you study it. It seems the wrong way around, don't you think? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Paul, you've got this wrong. It's, it's suffering and death and then resurrection, isn't it? Hasn't he got it the wrong way around? What's he saying here? I think he's saying something amazingly profound. 
to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, what is that about? Is it, well, when I really know the power of the resurrection, I will not feel any pain. I will not get any suffering. I will never have to cry. I will never have to suffer loss if I know the power of his resurrection. No, it's not saying that. It's, that's nonsense. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection is about embracing suffering now rather than avoiding it at all cost. See, how can we embrace the fellowship of sharing in the sufferings of Christ? It's only by the resurrection power of Christ in us. This is a verse that tells us that we're not to avoid suffering. Paul says, I want to know Christ. How can he really come to know Christ? By his willingness to embrace the personal sufferings of Christ in his own life. To be so identified with Christ that he's willing to suffer for Christ and to become like him in his death, to experience suffering and pain and perhaps even in Paul's case, he's thinking about even death. That's what could happen, uh, could happen as the result of his, his imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. He could end up being martyred. He could end up being killed. And Paul says, well, I'm willing to embrace this life of suffering and hardship and pain and even death because in that way, I will come to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, giving me grace to endure suffering and pain, to stand with him, to give me grace even to the point of death and entering into the certain hope of resurrection. Paul writes this because he knows that part of the seduction of the Judaizers is here is a way out of suffering and pain. Follow the Judaizers, you're going to be cool with the synagogue, things are going to calm down, you're going to be recognized, everything's going to be fine. Just back away from Jesus only. Get Jesus plus and you're going to fit in. Paul's saying to them, oh no, if you want to know Christ, you must be willing to embrace the suffering that comes from standing with Christ. Have you not read this over and over in biographies for those who have really suffered for their faith? That it is in the midst of that real suffering and persecution for Christ that they've known and experienced of, of the reality of Christ in a way that they've never known it before? Have you not read that? That's what people say. Paul's saying, copy my example and not the Judaizers. I don't think many of us have had to suffer in the way that Paul was suffering or that others have had to suffer. But I wonder, what are we tempted to avoid? What, what hardship and suffering are we tempted to avoid today? I was praying about this yesterday to try and apply it to my own heart. It's pretty feeble compared to what Paul was going through. Pretty feeble to what many are going through in the world today. But, you know, my temptation is to go back to regular employment as a dentist. That's my temptation. Uh, let's go back and just get a regular job. Um, I'll, I'll go to church and I'll be a really helpful person. I'll go to church. I'll give some money. 
I'll turn up, but um, I won't really get involved. I, um, I'll avoid evangelism. I'll avoid talking about Jesus because it's a bit awkward, isn't it? It's a bit awkward. I'll enjoy being middle class. Um, I'll really never challenge what is unacceptable in society. I'll never make a stand about what the Bible teaches about sexuality or about the uniqueness of Jesus. I'll just keep my head down. I'll, I'll keep quiet. Oh, imagine this, Reese. Long weekends. See, if you don't feel like going to church, you won't have to because you're not the pastor. I fancy a cruise. I'll just go away for a cruise. It'd be nice. I could wake up on Sundays and have a nice lazy Sunday morning in, just lie in bed, maybe get the papers. My wife could bring me a boiled egg in bed. Just sit there. Maybe mow the grass a little bit later. Now that's, that's my temptation at times. Why embrace the suffering of being a pastor? It's not much compared to most. But why embrace getting it in the neck for trying to lead and the stress of leadership? Why embrace, embrace the whole idea of sleepless nights, of frustrations, of pain, being at people's beck and call? Why embrace that? Why serve? Come out on a Friday night and be part of the, helping the guides and the scouts. Why bother doing that? Why? My friends, I want to know Christ. And share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And then know the resurrection from the dead. It's tempting. But the Bible says... It's excrement. It's dung. If it's pulling me away from Jesus, Jesus alone. What about you? And the key for us to, to stay on track, to be a model gospel partner church, is what? We need to rejoice in the Lord. Look away from ourselves and our frustrations and look to Christ to see his glory, to recall all that he has done for us, to recall all the glorious blessings that he gives to us, the certain, sure hope that is ahead of us. And when we rejoice in him, we'll be kept safe, we'll be kept on track. It's all worth it, is it not? Let's pray.